Chapter 18 of Lilith. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pete Williams. Lilith by George MacDonald. Chapter 18 Dead or Alive. I went walking on, still facing the moon, who, not yet high, was staring straight into the forest. I did not know what ailed her, but she was dark and dented, like a battered disk of old copper, and looked dispirited and weary. Not a cloud was nigh to keep her company, and the stars were too bright for her. Is this going to last forever? she seemed to say. She was going one way, and I was going the other. Yet through the wood we went a long way together. We did not commune much, for my eyes were on the ground, but her disconsolate look was fixed on me. I felt without seeing it. A long time we were together, I and the moon, walking side by side, she the dull shine, and I the live shadow. Something on the ground, under a spreading tree, caught my eye with its whiteness, and I turned toward it. Vague as it was in the shadow of the foliage, it suggested, as I drew nearer, a human body. Another skeleton, I said to myself, kneeling and laying my hand upon it. A body it was, however, and no skeleton, though as nearly one as body could well be. It lay on its side, and was very cold. Not cold like a stone, but cold like that which was once alive, and is alive no more. The closer I looked at it, the oftener I touched it, the less it seemed possible it should be other than dead. For one bewildered moment I fancied it one of the wild dancers, a ghostly Cinderella, perhaps, that had lost her way home, and perished in the strange night of an out-of-door world. It was quite naked, and so worn that, even in the shadow, I could, peering close, have counted without touching them every rib in its side. All its bones, indeed, were as visible as if tight-covered with only a thin elastic leather. Its beautiful yet terrible teeth, unseemly disclosed by the retracted lips, gleamed ghastly through the dark. Its hair was longer than itself, thick and very fine to the touch and black as night. It was the body of a tall, probably graceful woman. How had she come there? Not of herself, and already in such wasted condition, surely. Her strength must have failed her. She had fallen, and lain there until she died of hunger. But how, even so, could she be thus emaciated? And how came she to be naked? Where were the savages to strip and leave her, or what wild beasts would have taken her garments? That her body should have been left was not wonderful. I rose to my feet, stood, and considered. I must not, could not, let her lie exposed and forsaken. Natural reverence forbade it. Even the garment of a woman claims respect. Her body it were impossible to leave uncovered. Irreverent eyes might look on it. Brutal claws might toss it about. Years would pass ere the friendly rains wash it into the soil. But the ground was hard, almost solid with interlacing roots, and I had but my bare hands. 
At first it seemed plain that she had not long been dead. There was not a sign of decay about her. But then what had the slow wasting of life left of her to decay? Could she be still alive? Might she not? What if she were? Things went very strangely in this strange world. Even then there would be little chance of bringing her back, but I must know she was dead before I buried her. As I left the forest hall, I had spied in the doorway a bunch of ripe grapes, and brought it with me, eating as I came. A few were yet left on the stalk, and their juice might possibly revive her. Anyhow, it was all I had with which to attempt her rescue. The mouth was happily a little open, but the head was in such an awkward position that, to move the body, I passed my arm under the shoulder on which it lay. When I found the pine needles beneath it, warm, she could not have been any time dead and might still be alive, though I could discern no motion of the heart or any indication that she breathed. One of her hands was clenched hard, apparently enclosing something small. I squeezed a grape into her mouth, but no swallowing followed. To do for her all I could, I spread a thick layer of pine needles and dry leaves, laid one of my garments over it, warm from my body, lifted her upon it, and covered her with my clothes and a great heap of leaves. I would save the little warmth left in her, hoping an increase to it when the sun came back. Then I tried another grape but could perceive no slightest movement of mouth or throat. Doubt, I said to myself, may be a poor encouragement to do anything, but it is a bad reason for doing nothing. So tight was the skin upon her bones that I dared not use friction. I crept into the heap of leaves, got as close to her as I could, and took her in my arms. I had not much heat left in me, but what I had I would share with her. Thus I spent what remained of the night, sleepless and longing for the sun. Her cold seemed to radiate into me, but no heat to pass from me to her. Had I fled from the beautiful sleepers, I thought, each on her dim straight silver couch, to lie alone with such a bedfellow? I had refused a lovely privilege. I was given over to an awful duty. Beneath the sad, slow-setting moon, I lay with the dead, and watched for the dawn. The darkness had given way, and the eastern horizon was growing dimly clearer, when I caught sight of a motion, rather than of anything that moved, not far from me, and close to the ground. It was the low undulating of a large snake, which passed me in an unswerving line. Presently appeared making as it seemed for the same point, what I took for a roebuck doe and her calf. Again a while, and two creatures like bear cubs came, with three or four smaller ones behind them. The light was now growing so rapidly that when, a few minutes after, a troop of horses went trotting past, I could see that, although the largest of them were no bigger than the smallest Shetland pony, they must yet be full-grown, so perfect were they in form, and so much had they all the ways and actions of great horses. They were of many breeds. Some seemed models of cart-horses, others of chargers, hunters, racers. Dwarf cattle and small elephants followed. "'Why are the children not here?' I said to myself. 
The moment I am free of this poor woman, I must go back and fetch them. Where were the creatures going? What drew them? Was this an exodus or a morning habit? I must wait for the sun. Till he came, I must not leave the woman. I laid my hand on the body, and could not help thinking it felt a trifle warmer. It might have gained a little of the heat I had lost. It could hardly have generated any. What reason for hope there was had not grown less. The forehead of the day began to glow, and soon the sun came peering up, as if to see for the first time what all this stir of a new world was about. At sight of his great, innocent splendor I rose full of life, strong against death. Removing the handkerchief I had put to protect the mouth and eyes from the pine needles, I looked anxiously to see whether I had found a priceless jewel or but its empty case. The body lay motionless as when I found it. Then first, in the morning light, I saw how drawn and hollow was the face, how sharp were the bones under the skin, how every tooth shaped itself through the lips. The human garment was indeed worn to its threads, but the bird of heaven might yet be nestling within, might yet awake to motion and song. But the sun was shining on her face. I rearranged the handkerchief, laid a few leaves lightly over it, and set about to follow the creatures. Their main track was well beaten, and must have long been used, likewise many of the tracks that, joining it from both sides, merged in and broadened it. The trees retreated as I went, and the grass grew thicker. Presently the forest was gone, and a wide expanse of loveliest green stretched away to the horizon. Through it, along the edge of the forest, flowed a small river, and to this the track led. At sight of the water a new though undefined hope sprang up in me. The stream looked everywhere deep, and was full to the brim, but nowhere more than a few yards wide. A bluish mist rose from it, vanishing as it rose. On the opposite side, in the plentiful grass, many small animals were feeding. Apparently they slept in the forest, and in the morning sought the plain, swimming the river to reach it. I knelt and would have drunk, but the water was hot, and had a strange metallic taste. I leapt to my feet. Here was the warmth I sought, the first necessity of life. I sped back to my helpless charge. Without well considering my solitude, no one will understand what seemed to lie for me in the redemption of this woman from death. Prove what she may, I thought with myself, I shall at least be lonely no more. I had found myself such poor company that now first I seemed to know what hope was. This blessed water would expel the cold death and drown my desolation. I bore her to the stream. Tall as she was, I found her marvelously light. Her bones were so delicate, and so little covered them. I grew yet more hopeful when I f found her so far from stiff that I could carry her on one arm, like a sleeping child leaning against my shoulder. I went softly, dreading even the wind of my motion, and glad there was no other. The water was too hot to lay her at once in it. The shock might scare from her the yet fluttering life. I laid her on the bank, and dipping one of my garments, began to bathe the pitiful form. 
So wasted was it that, save from the plentifulness and blackness of the hair, it was impossible even to conjecture whether she was young or old. Her eyelids were just not shut, which made her look dead the more. There was a crack in the clouds of her night, at which no sun shone through. The longer I went on bathing the poor bones, the less grew my hope that they would ever again be clothed with strength, that ever those eyelids would lift, and a soul look out. Still I kept bathing continuously, allowing no part time to grow cold, while I bathed another, and gradually the body became so much warmer that at last I ventured to submerge it. I got into the stream and drew it in, holding the face above the water, and letting the swift, steady current flow all about the rest. I noted, but was able to conclude nothing from the fact, that, for all the heat, the shut hand never relaxed its hold. After about ten minutes I lifted it out and laid it again on the bank, dried it, and covered it as well as I could, then ran to the forest for leaves. The grass and soil were dry and warm, and when I returned I thought it had scarcely lost any of the heat the water had given it. I spread the leaves upon it, and ran for more, then for a third and a fourth freight. I could now leave it and go to explore, in the hope of discovering some shelter. I ran up the stream toward some rocky hills I saw in that direction, which were not far off. When I reached them I found the river issuing full-grown from a rock at the bottom of one of them. To my fancy it seemed to have run down a stair inside, an eager cataract, at every landing wild to get out, but only at the foot finding a door of escape. It did not fill the opening whence it rushed, and I crept through into a little cave, where I learned that, instead of hurrying tumultuously down a stair, it rose quietly from the ground at the back like the base of a large column, and ran along one side, nearly filling a deep, rather narrow channel. I considered the place, and saw that, if I could find a few fallen boughs long enough to lie across the channel, and large enough to bear a little weight without bending much, I might, with smaller branches and plenty of leaves, make upon them a comfortable couch, which the stream, under, would keep constantly warm. Then I ran back to see how my charge fared. She was lying as I had left her. The heat had not brought her to life, but neither had it developed anything to check farther hope. I got a few boulders out of the channel and arranged them at her feet and on both sides of her. Running again to the wood, I had not to search long ere I found some small boughs fit for my purpose, mostly of beech, their dry yellow leaves yet clinging to them. With these I had soon laid the floor of a bridge-bed over the torrent. I crossed the boughs with smaller branches, interlaced these with twigs, and buried all deep in leaves and dry moss. When thus at length, after not a few journeys to the forest, I had completed a warm, dry, soft couch, I took the body once more, and set out with it for the cave. It was so light that now and then as I went I almost feared lest, when I laid it down, I should find it a skeleton after all, and when at last I did lay it gently on the pathless bridge, it was a greater relief to part with that fancy than with the weight. Once more I covered the body with a thick layer of leaves, and, trying again to feed her with a grape, 
found to my joy that I could open the mouth a little farther. The grape, indeed, lay in it unheeded, but I hoped some of the juice might find its way down. After an hour or two on the couch she was no longer cold. The warmth of the brook had interpenetrated her frame, truly it was but a frame, and she was warm to the touch, not probably with the warmth of life, but with a warmth which rendered it more possible, if she were alive, that she might live. I had read of one in a trance lying motionless for weeks. In that cave, day after day, night after night, seven long days and nights, I sat or lay, now waking, now sleeping, but always watching. Every morning I went out and bathed in the hot stream, and every morning felt thereupon as if I had eaten and drunk, which experience gave me courage to lay her in it also every day. Once, as I did so, a shadow of discoloration on her left side gave me a terrible shock, but the next morning it had vanished, and I continued the treatment, every morning, after her bath, putting a fresh grape in her mouth. I, too, ate of the grapes and other berries I found in the forest, but I believed that, with my daily bath in that river, I could have done very well without eating at all. Every time I slept I dreamed of finding a wounded angel, who, unable to fly, remained with me until at last she loved me and would not leave me, and every time I woke it was to see, instead of an angel visage with lustrous eyes, the white, motionless, wasted face upon the couch. But Adam himself, when first he saw her asleep, could not have looked more anxiously for Eve's awaking than I watched for this woman's. Adam knew nothing of himself, perhaps nothing of his need of another self. I, an alien from my fellows, had learned to love what I had lost. Were this one wasted shred of womanhood to disappear, I should have nothing in me but a consuming hunger after life. I forgot even the little ones. Things were not amiss with them. Here lay what might wake and be a woman, might actually open eyes and look out of them upon me. Now first I knew what solitude meant. Now that I gazed on one who neither saw nor heard, neither moved nor spoke. I saw now that a man alone is but a being that may become a man that he is but a need, and therefore a possibility. To be enough for himself, a being must be an eternal, self-existent worm. So superbly constituted, so simply complicate is man, he rises from and stands upon such a pedestal of lower physical organisms and spiritual structures, that no atmosphere will comfort or nourish his life, less divine than that offered by other souls. Nowhere but in other lives can he breathe. Only by the reflex of other lives can he ripen his specialty, develop the idea of himself, the individuality that distinguishes him from every other. Were all men alike, each would still have an individuality, secured by his personal consciousness, but there would be small reason why there should be more than two or three such while for the development of the differences which make a large and lofty unity possible, and which alone can make millions into a church, an endless and measureless influence and reaction are indispensable. A man to be perfect, complete, that is, in having reached the spiritual condition of persistent and universal growth, 
which is the mode wherein he inherits the infinitude of his father, must have the education of a world of fellow men. Save for the hope of the dawn of life in the form beside me, I should have fled for fellowship to the beasts that grazed and did not speak. Better to go about with them, infinitely better, than to live alone. But with the faintest prospect of a woman to my friend, I, poorest of creatures, was yet a possible man. End of chapter 18 Recording by Pete Williams, Pittsburgh, PA